Hey guys, Jack Spierko here with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is February the 11th, 2019, and this is episode 2378 of the Survival Podcast. It's Monday, so it's time for a listener feedback show. Here's what we got today. We're going to talk a little bit about raising quail in an aviary and the futility of listening to people in some online forums. One of my favorite ones to laugh at, in this case, BackyardChickens.com, home of the teacup chicken. Yes, we'll talk about that today and why sometimes you just need to stop listening to what everybody knows online. Uh, Potponics. Yeah, there's this company out there in Canada, and they are growing themselves some really good weed using aquaponics. And they're using tilapia, and they're producing tilapia, and they're making marijuana, and that's all wonderful. And, of course, you know me, that's, that's great. But actually, this is, this is making me see something more and more clearly that's coming. And this is going to be true for cannabis and hemp. Boom, glut, bust. The cycle continues. And I'll tell you why these markets are particularly... Um, likely to have this pattern occur. In fact, it's already happened to a degree uh, with cannabis in con uh, states like Oregon, where they now have more than they know. Like, apparently, everybody in Oregon would have to smoke pot for like 10 years to get rid of the surplus they have right now or something like that. So we're going to talk about the bigger scheme going on here. And it's not really about cannabis. It's about recognizing this cycle and the potential for it to impact any given industry so that you're prepared to deal with that, whatever that means to you, whether it's an investment opportunity, a hedging opportunity, a stay-the-hell-out-of-it opportunity, a figure out how to capitalize it on the other side of that cycle uh, thing, whatever it is. We're going to talk about that. We have another example of stupidity in education. Yeah, this one you're going to go, what? What? And I'm going to go, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, we'll, we'll get to it. Um, I have a question on the energy portion of the Green New Deal, right? Uh, is it even doable? Let's set aside that it's going to be 50 gazillion, trillion, gazillion, 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 gazillion dollars. And just say, like, is it technologically even possible? And my answer on that might surprise you. Maybe it won't. Question on an unpickable lock. Uh, yeah... Can be done, sort of, kind of. Maybe it's worth it. Maybe it's not. We'll talk about that and what locks actually do anyway. Um, more on having a neighboring state raise the minimum wage. We had a guy a week ago that I answered a question for that was really concerned that his business was basically going to be destroyed uh, by Massachusetts raising the minimum wage. He lived just across the border in New Hampshire. I said, I don't think so. Well, someone came along the blog and commented on this, and I, I, I thought that was really cool because they actually are dealing with it. There's somewhere where it already happened, and pretty much exactly what I said would happen, which is don't worry about it, it's going to be good for you on the other side of the border, is. So we'll hear that comment, just a little bit of follow-up on that. And then, you, you remember like a week ago, I said, and today we're going to talk about the fact that 40% of Americans are one paycheck from poverty, and what that says about our nation, and then we didn't do it. Yeah, sometimes I miss a segment, 
And we are going to talk about that today. Oh, yeah, we're also going to talk about thoughts on introducing vegetation into an in-ground large pond and the cautions that I would advise if somebody wants to do that. See, I skipped a segment. That's going to be the third segment today, and somehow I skipped over it. I will endeavor to not skip any segments today. This is certainly not on purpose when that happens. Uh, sometimes I will make a decision. We are going too long today, and I'm going to not do this segment. When I do that on purpose, I'll say, hey, guys, I know we said we were. So when it just doesn't happen, you feel free to remind me, guys. You say, hey, you know, Jack, uh, if you could put that segment back in the show, that, that would be great. All right? Anyway. Before we get into all your uh, feedback for me today, let's uh, talk about our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day, number one today is RidgeWallet.com. RidgeWallet has changed my life just a little bit for the better. I don't like, I like, it's not, it slices and dices in my world and I, I cured my cancer. And I, no, but not having a billfold on my right ass cheek has made my life a little bit better. It's better for my spine. I feel better. I never forget my wallet. I had a habit that when I would get in my vehicle, I would take my wallet out of there because it's not comfortable, and I have a little cubby hole I would stick it into in my truck, and then it would be there. I ain't sure if you get pulled over, that was nice because I didn't have to reach down the waistband, right? You know, so it was right there. Um, but what would inevitably happen is I would get where I was going, and then I would get out of my vehicle, and I would go in a store, and I would start picking stuff up, for instance, and then do a butt check and oh gee I don't have it and now I gotta go back out to the car and yeah it's a pain in the ass just the fact the way this thing carries that doesn't happen to me anymore it also protects us against uh, identity theft uh, through people scanning RFID cards and it looks cool check them out today RidgeWallet.com remember 10% off everything RidgeWallet sells for MSB members as well next up today ButcherBox.com I love ButcherBox we just got our ButcherBox I don't know if Dorothy put the video up yet, but I just did a, a video on Instagram of our butcher box coming in. And I purposely, like, it showed up in the morning, and I don't necessarily want to go put all the meat away first thing in the morning, especially on, like, during a work day or something like that. Or in this case, it was a weekend, and we had a bunch of fun stuff going on. So we left it sit in the box all day. And some people, I think, are worried that, like, you know, how, how is meat going to handle being transferred through the mail? Well, a pack with dry ice and all. And even after, you know, being in the mail and then sitting in our house all day in the box, I open it up and I'm slapping these, these big hunks of meat and the bacon packages. And I'm like, sirloin tip, you know, and it's like clack. It's just frozen solid. So, guys, it's good quality stuff. They ship it right to your door. It's going to arrive in good condition. I'll, I'll tell you flat out, I've had a couple people email me and say, hey, I had a problem with butcher box. And then I get with my guy over there and he says, let me fix it for you. These are the, that's the kind of company I want. I do not expect the companies will never make a mistake. I do expect them to fix it. The few mistakes they've made, they've fixed. And I hear great feedback all the time on ButcherBox. So check them out. Remember, their discount that they do for MSB is $10 off a box every month. So if you get a monthly box of ButcherBox, they put $120 back in your pocket. Totally cover your MSB uh, cost twice as an MSB member in a year of subscription to ButcherBox. And great quality. So hey... We're lucky to have them, guys. Make sure you support them. With that, let's go ahead and jump into today's podcast. Uh, I'm not actually going to read the email that prompted this. I've already kind of helped this guy out directly because it was kind of specific to his situation. And honestly, it was a really long email, and I told him I didn't have time to read it all, but here was the basics uh, of, of the answer. But he wants to keep quail and chickens close to each other 
not, I don't think, in the same space, but real close to each other. And he wants to keep quail on the ground. And he went over, made a mistake. He went to a place called Backyard Chickens Forum, and he posted in there and said, I, this is my plan, this is what I'm going to do. And, of course, the, the quail police or the chicken police came out and told him how wrong he was and that he would grow tumors on his ass if he did this and the world would end and uh, the, the, it would rain dogs and cats and then they would have puppy kittens and it would be Armageddon and the world would end and you're so stupid that you think this and everybody knows you can't keep quail on the ground because they're going to get diseases and your chickens and your quail need to be 141.35 feet apart, whatever it was, you know, apart. At one inch closer than that, it's just literal catastrophe. And, and okay, look, there is a lot of information to be gained in forums, social media groups, YouTube, etc. But there, there is no filter on stupid on the internet. Okay, and there is also a lot of really well-meaning people, and they go out and they read all this. Like, oh, you can't keep quail on the ground. Where do you think they're supposed to live, folks? They're a ground bird, right? Uh, so they read this. And, and they, they set up their quail in rat cages exactly the way they're supposed to by spec. X amount per square foot, this kind of thing. And they do it. And, you know, they get great results. So the fact that they were able to do what everybody says you have to do, and it worked, proves that anything else is just the end of the world as we know it. And it's just not true. I, I've raised quail... And an aviary now for three years, they're very happy in there. I, I don't I don't fault anybody for raising quail in a stack system. There's a lot of advantages to it from a work standpoint for yourself. You don't have to crawl under shit to find that one quail egg that they put exactly 50% distance from both sides of the thing where you can barely reach it. There's that. You know, the quail eggs will always be clean, you know, and what have you. Um, but there's nothing wrong with raising quail in an aviary. Chickens and quail. Well, they can spread disease. Okay, like, if chickens and quail both can get a disease, we just call it XYZ disease, and because of that, we shouldn't keep them together, and they should be 147.3 feet apart, then should not we separate every chicken 147.3 feet from every other chicken because they also can get the same disease? This is just stupidity. This is just ignorance. It's, it's not even stupidity. It's mostly ignorance. And again, I think most of the people that do this stuff are well-meaning. So here's what I learned in my little foray into chickens and quail in the same space. I went out and got four little bantam chickens. Unfortunately, I did lose one of them, and it was the pretty one. But the other three are just fine, and they're happy. And I got bantams because bantams love to go broody. They're like one of the – next to silkies, uh, I got uh, uh, cochrans, bantam cochrans. And uh, they're next to, to Bantam Silkies, they are like the most broody bird on planet Earth. They love to go broody and raise little babies. And the only reason I didn't get Silkies, because I think they're really cool too, is that nobody wanted to sell me sexed Silkies. So I would have had to buy a whole bunch of them and kill a little bunch of little Silky Roosters, and I didn't really want to do that. So I got the Cochrans, and I put them in there, and this seemed like a wonderful idea. And I found this British chick, and she did it. And her little chickens raised little quails. And, of course, she thought that was all wonderful and you keep the quails forever like pets. And I was like, I want free meat. And I, I want to do as little work as I can and get free meat. So my plan was I'll put the chickens in there and the quails and the chickens will live together and everything will be Shangri-La. And then I'll take the quails' eggs and stick them under the chickens. And all of a sudden I stopped getting quails' eggs. 
And I, I'm like, I know, I have a friend that has quails, and, and I've given him mail so he can give me some eggs, and we'll be good. And so he brought me some fertile quail eggs, and we stuck them under a chicken, and we went back in 15 minutes, and they were gone. Because the chickens were eating them. That's where my eggs had gone. So the only issue that I ran into with cohabitation was chickens eating the quail's eggs. And I think it's because they're motlet, right? They have little specks and sparkles on them, right? And it's like, ooh, what is that? And peck, and then one opens up, and oh, there's a yummy in there. And then it becomes a thing, and everybody does it. I don't think this will always happen, but I think once your chickens start doing it, it's going to happen, and it will never stop. And the reason I believe it is the color of the eggs is not just that I gave the chickens duck eggs and they hatched a duck and they made a duck and then they looked at it like, what did we do? I don't understand this thing that we have, but it's a baby now and we'll take care of it. Uh, it, it. It's because, and not only because they don't eat their own eggs, because every once in a while until I got those chickens out of there, I would walk through there and I would find a quail's egg. And anybody that's ever kept quail knows every once in a while a quail lays an egg without the colors on it, without the pattern. It's just kind of like a light brown little egg. They never ate those. So... If you're going to cohabitate them, you may have this issue. If you're just talking about them being near each other, there is no issue. And if you want them to live together and you don't care if your chickens eat the quail's eggs, because you just have some quails running around because you like them inside your aviary, it's not a problem. They, they pretty much ignored each other. Like, I'm a chicken, I do chicken things, you're a quail, you do quail things, whatever, and they just ignored each other, as though the other ones didn't even exist. And there was never a problem. Now, I'm not saying if you stick a big old rooster in there that there might not be some quails flying through the air without wings. Okay? I'm just saying, in general, it's not a problem. Here's the one thing to watch out for. The other thing, though, is how much square footage when you're starting to put quail on the ground. If we go apples to apples and people are putting, let's say, five quails, four females and a male in a two-by-two two cage, and we put five quails in a two-by-two two square foot dirt area... It is going to become really nasty, really fast, and you are going to have problems. I have run as many as 60 quails in a 10-foot by 50-foot aviary, and there was no problem. One caveat, every six-ish months, I bring about two, uh, two cubic yards of wood chips in there and spread it out for them. So there's a deep litter action going on in addition to this. So that's, I mean, it's you got to have some sort of a litter, something to take up all of this waste and enough space, and it's just not a problem. Anyway, I wanted to throw that in there. And again, I want you guys to really be careful with, I read online. I, I, I know when I'm talking to somebody online and they say, but I read online somewhere. So they don't, even, they don't even remember their source. But they are sure that this thing, whatever it might be, will destroy the earth if you do it. There, there's police for everything online. There's the chicken police, the quail police, the rabbit police. I was listening to a podcast by one of the uh, um, aquarium guys that I follow, and he said, I tried to be a normal person for a day. This guy's like a quarter million followers on YouTube. you know. And he's like, I, I went to a Facebook group on goldfish, and I had some goldfish in a tank, and they made a baby goldfish. And I posted a picture and said, look at my baby goldfish. And then the goldfish police came and told me, you can't do that. In spite of the fact that there is the goldfish. And, you know, all this ridicule that this dude got, who probably knows a million times more than the average person about fish. This is a guy has been in the aquarium industry for like 40 years. But he's an idiot because he's not doing what everybody says you have to do. And, and you just need to realize, like, um, this is kind of a general thing about the Internet anyway. Especially a lot of you guys do a lot of posting or read a lot of shit from people. It's political. 
and you see people getting triggered and upset and gnashing of teeth and screaming at each other and unwilling to listen to reason. You think, man, politics sucks. Listen, this happens everywhere. I'll find it, and I'll put a link to it. But back to the aquarium thing. I, I'm in a, some, some groups on Facebook about aquariums, and there was a question that just kept coming up in this group over and over and over again about supposed liquid CO2. Now, you can't do liquid CO2 at the temperatures on planet Earth. You have to go very cold, like, like liquid oxygen. You've got to go very cold to make liquid CO2. Um, but there are these products. They sell under various names as uh, CO2 supplementation in a bottle. You put so much of this in your tank every other day, and your plants get CO2 from it, and they grow really good. It doesn't do jack diddly squat to produce CO2 because it can't. Uh, there may be a bit of carbon that the plants can gain from it, but they'll gain more from atmospheric CO2 with an air stone than they'll ever get from a shit in a bottle. It is a really good algicide. And when used properly, it kills algae. And if you don't overuse it, it doesn't really hurt your plants. And then since the algae is dead, your plants will grow better. So I wrote this all up, very scientifically explained, much more in-depth than I just gave you. And there's people losing their minds about it. You don't know shit. You're not a scientist. The same triggering that you will see in a political discussion. Whatever somebody's, like, holy grail is, if you step on it, they go nuts. And there is almost no dealing with people in this state. And you have to just assume, like I said, it's the drunk theory. Whenever somebody online tells you you can't do something, you shouldn't do something, everybody knows, they may not be wrong, but they also may not be right. And if it was a drunk guy in a bar telling you why you shouldn't buy the, like you're talking to somebody and say, you know, I'm about to pick up this new used car, I think it's a really good deal. And, you'd be like, and he's like, hey, everybody knows that the motor in that car sucks ass, and if you buy it, you're not, you're not getting nothing but trouble. All right. You may have just gotten a very valuable piece of information. That piece of information is probably worth following up on. Okay? But it's probably not worth making a life decision just because this one drunk guy in a bar told you this. He could be right. He could be wrong. First thing I would do is call about four junkyards and see if you can get a motor for that vehicle. And if you can't find a motor for it, he's probably right. And you say, why is that? Because that's how many of them blew up. And, people, and, and that means whenever one goes to junk... People need to buy it really quick because there's only so many of them available and you can't put a different motor in that vehicle. And you might want to check some other things to find out. You might find out, like, when I bought my Ford and everybody's my Ford F-350, oh, that motor's junk. And every single complaint, somebody effed with the motor. Somebody chipped it, got more horsepower, whatever, went in and took the engineering that a whole bunch of Stephen Harris's sat around a table for 10 years and developed and said, I can do better, and screwed it up. And... There ain't, I ain't had a damn problem with my truck except when my idiot farmhand put gas in it. And it was like, oh, it's dead now. There's, the Ford will never survive that. Drained it out, filled it up with fuel, fired it up, drove it down the road. No problems. Right? So just I, I wanted to, again, come back on that. And as far as poultry advice, stay away from backyard chickens, man. Those people, they look at chickens as pets. I'm not saying all of them, but they look at chickens as pets. They make clothes for their chickens. It's like teacup chicken central. You cannot take advice about livestock in a homesteading situation from people that treat a chicken like a chihuahua. You can't do it. Next up, um, there's this pretty cool article. I'm going to have a link in the show notes for you guys today so you can check it out. 
Um, it, it's pretty cool. I'll give you the gist of it. You can read the whole article if you want to. But this company in Toronto uh, has a facility, and they're licensed to produce medical marijuana the way that they're doing it. And they're the only one right now that is, which in itself is an issue and kind of telling. But they're using aquaponics. They have 16 fish tanks full of tilapia. And, you know, on a regular schedule, they clean out one of those tanks and they give all the adult uh, tilapia, about 300 tilapia um, per, per, per rotation to this, this thing called Second Chance, which is basically to feed homeless people. So they're, feed, they're basically giving the fish away. And this is kind of what I've always said about aquaponics, that the fish are a byproduct and the product is the vegetation. And when you're growing a very expensive medical marijuana uh, crop, then that's even more the case. Like, they really don't care about these fish other than this works really good. And I don't even think they think it works that great. I think they're trying to be a differentiator. They're planning an IPO. They're going to come out with a stock, and they're going to want to sell lots of stock and become rich overnight. Um, I'm not putting any of this down. I'm just saying this is what's going on. And this is, if, if you get any kind of financial newsletters, you're hearing all kinds of shit about how you can get rich by the next, you know, mega cannabis stock or whatever. This is all going through a cycle, and I'm going to leave the specifics of cannabis and, and um, aquaponics now. Just know they're doing that. Uh, this is also going industrial hemp. So the new farm bill basically removed the federal prohibition on hemp in America, which God was it past time to do that. Like That should have never happened in the first place. It really shouldn't have. Uh, they've been growing industrial hemp in Canada forever. You can buy the seeds and eat them on your salad, and they're actually pretty tasty that way. I know they won't make you fail a drug test. I mean, so I mean, like it's not like Canada was where all the drug kingpins were hanging out, you know, um, to, 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 to sell hemp, for God's sakes. So that got legalized, and it, let's again, let's, let's dial in on something that's already happened in this cycle. So Oregon restricts how much square foot a facility can have to grow marijuana. And you have to get licensed to do it and all. I think you can grow at I'm not sure. Don't go start and doing it with just on my word. I think Oregon is also one of the states where you can have up to X amount of plants in your home. But the larger facilities that sell through dispensaries and all, they're very tightly regulated. There can only be so many of them. Only so many square feet. And even with that restriction, they now have like this just, I don't know what to do at all. Right, because they're talking about huge crops in this uh, aquaponics facility. This is the, the fundamental about this particular product, whether it be what we call hemp or what we call cannabis, which are actually different different strains of the same plant. Um, it's not hard to grow. It's just not hard to grow. And if you if you get a facility that can dial in on all the specifics to make it grow as good as it can, it's really not hard to grow. I spoke to one person from Washington. Uh, at my last workshop, where it is legal to grow there. And he's like, yeah, I grew 10 pounds of bud last year. I'm like, holy crap. I'm like, so are you just doing, like, growing for dispensaries? No, no, it's just growing at home. And I'm like, look, like, so you're doing more? No, he's like, no, I have the, you know, six or eight whatever plants. That's all I have. And, yeah, that's how, I'm like, holy. And that's why I said, okay, this whole thing no matter how much more legalization comes for cannabis, is going to go boom, glut, bust. And it's already starting to happen. And that's with really tight regulation on how many 
and really limited capacity of production. You know, if you have 1,800 square feet, you can still only do what you can do in 1,800 square feet. Some states limit the number of plants a facility can have. So they can have more room, but you see what I'm saying? Like, this is restricted. We go into to, 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 uh, hemp. You can plow a field and plant hemp. And with modern agricultural practices, whether conventional or organic, you can grow an ass ton on 10 acres. I mean, more than you can really get your head around. And I, I'm a huge fan of CBD oils. We've had some guests on about it. We're not done yet. Um, by the way, did get you guys a discount on uh, Brian's uh, CBD-infused coffee. It's in the uh, Members Brigade. You can try it out. By the way, he does fantastic coffee, just the coffee itself. Uh, the Brian's blend is pretty awesome. Um, so I have nothing bad to say about CBD. I, I believe in abolishment of drug prohibition across the board, but specifically as it pertains to cannabis. Cannabis would, we wouldn't even have these super duper high level strains of it that we have today if it wasn't for the prohibition in the first place. We would just have plain old stuff like, you know, back when high school stuff, um, if you're my age anyway. Um, but there, nothing is immune to economic cycles. And one of the things that's always made cannabis a really high-value crop was prohibition and regulation. It's what allowed the agorism side, the black market, gray market side, to actually be very, very profitable. You make it where anybody can grow six plants in their house, and you watch the value of these companies just decline. Now, there will always be a place for, like, cutting-edge development and cloning and genetics, especially in the medical field. Because whether you believe this or not, whether if you've listened to too many talking heads on the radio, on AM radio, whether you believe this or not, there are certain things that cannabis either cures or manages better than any pharmaceutical. And this has been with handcuffs on research. You take the handcuffs off, the research gets better, and we will get better treatments. This is a, a wonderful plant. Can it be abused? Sure it can. So can alcohol. It's much easier to kill yourself with a bottle of grain alcohol than a bag full of buds. I don't care if you agree. It's scientifically valid. Okay? A lot of things can be abused. People abuse porn. People are addicted to porn. So it doesn't matter that some people can have a problem with this thing. There's, you show me the thing and I'll show you a group of addicts trying to get off of it. Alright? People get addicted to TV. People get addicted to shopping. So... That's null and void there. Um, but these are going to run this cycle because it's too easy to produce. And the more production that's available, the lower the value of the product coming out. Right now, the only thing keeping prices up is government regulations and restrictions. And even that can only do so much. So it's kind of a cautionary tale here. When you get that you know, email that says, invest in these 10 cannabis stocks, you're going to be the next Bill Gates. You know, Bill Gates high on his yacht, right? Um, no. <laughs> I'm not saying that there might not be investment potential here, but you have to look for someone that has a clear differentiating factor, and growing your bud with tilapia is not a clear differentiating factor. It may make an IPO go very well, okay, and be traded on an over-the-counter big board something or another instead of the real stock market, who knows. Um, but it probably ain't a good long-term investment. The, the, the place to look is the company with the mitigation strategy toward the problem that's coming of the boom-glut bust. 
They're either going to have an incredible marketing program. They're going to have an incredible distribution program. They're going to be highly specialized. And then, as I said, this segment is not about cannabis and hemp. This is about all these sectors that are emerging. Every sector that's emerging right now, industrial automation, photovoltaics, all of it, you can only patent your way to so much exclusivity. And the economy of scale is the economy of scale. And sooner or later what happens is you get an Amazon, right? You get a Microsoft. You get an Apple in that industry. And there's probably a hundred thousand companies trying to make themselves that. And one or two are going to become the behemoth in that market. And that's everything, guys. That's everything. So be careful with how you invest or how you strategically align yourself with specific industries, how you decide, I'm going to go into this industry myself. That's fine. But you need to have your mitigation strategy. What are you going to do? Because the reality is, a person like Brian, for instance, we just had on doing CBD-infused coffee, if there's some things that are going on now, might actually make him not able to do that anymore. We'll see. Um, right now, I guess he wouldn't be able to do it in Vermont and North Carolina, I think, from what I just read, but I'm not sure. Because they're saying you can't put it in an edible. Because now it is a drug. It is an over-the-counter, highly unregulated drug, but you can't put it in an edible. I guess that's what they're saying. But let's say we can get past that. Then something like a CBD-infused coffee using a distillate product, if the, if the cost of CBD goes down, then his input cost goes down. He can lower his price accordingly and still make the same margin if all goes well and all other strategies are taken into account. And that's a small business, very small, kind of a one-man show. right? You see how that works. Now, if all you're doing is selling little bottles of CBD oil, and they're opening up a new little shop on the street down the road from you every other day. And this market starts a race to the bottom, which eventually, because of supply and demand, it will. And you don't have a mitigation strategy. You have a, a temporary business opportunity. You need to be thinking, okay, if you're not going to mitigate that, how do you use this to build a customer base to sell something else so that when it happens, it's only a piece of what you do instead of what you do. And again, I don't care what it is. All of these industries are subject to this occurrence. When it comes to something you can physically grow, though, and that anybody that really wants it can grow in their own house, and eventually, legally, anybody will be able to. Right now, anybody can do it. But you're risking going to prison in some places, going to jail in others, getting a fine in others. It all depends, right? But you take the lid off that, and it's coming. And when that happens, like, hey, man, you're only going to get so much for this stuff when I can grow in my closet. And all the technology exists to do it. So this one's going to be more subject, and it's going to cycle faster. But this cycle is a pattern to be aware of. Uh, next, I have a question from my buddy Steve. He's the guy that I did a bunch recently on air for about ponds. And specifically building something like a Miyagi pond, which is a timber frame pond, which I'm probably going to announce the dates for my small spring workshop for that this week. I'll probably put the dates out this week for that. Uh, but I, I went through a whole litany of what to do and how to do that and how to design and build it. And he sent me another email. He said, hey, what about this? I have a quarter-acre pond. It holds water well but drops a foot or two in the droughts. It's about 12 feet deep in the middle. I'm so envious of that. Uh, it's mostly round-shaped, one sort of cut off on uh, one side. As far as I know, it has little or no structure at the bottom. 
It does have catfish and brim in it. About 18 Saxony ducks and six, uh, eight pilgrim reefs use it daily. Okay. Uh, I've not introduced any aquatic plants because of not knowing what I was doing. I was afraid I would wreck it. I have attached a couple pictures for you. And it's a typical Texas stock pond or stock tank. It, it's, you know, Steve lives out in East Texas. It's clay, and then there's clay, and then there's more clay. And even if you want to go 12 feet deep, if your clay doesn't go 12 feet deep, there's so much clay that you can put it aside, and then you can go as deep as you want, and you have all the you, – you just basically dig a hole, roll out the clay, pack it down, and it fills up with water, as long as you got catchment. And, and that's what Steve's got. I would use incredible caution with introducing any aquatic vegetation to this pond whatsoever. Number one, because the geese and the ducks are going to tear into it. And then it's going to die. And then it's going to add to the problem instead of take away with it. So any floating vegetation, uh, they will chew on, etc. I had a little pond that I played with. My ducks got into it. And I had water hyacinth on it. And they just, just destroyed it. They destroyed it. And, and it was just a problem. Um, I would look, if I'm going to do vegetation at all, to like emergent vegetation. And specifically emergent vegetation that can't grow once water's over a certain depth. So certain rushes, maybe even dwarf cattail instead of full-size cattail, etc. Um, except you're going to have an issue that your ducks are going to eat it. So you have to protect it till it gets established. Um, that could probably be done with just, you know, uh, like a tomato cage style thing. So you put your, your rush or your cattails in and you just put some stakes around it, walk in the water, boom, and just keep them off there till it establishes. Because when they're little, they'll pull them out and eat them. They'll just eat them right down. Um, but I don't know that you even need to do that because when you have a body of water this small, only a quarter of an acre, and you start putting lots of vegetation into it, you have to ask yourself, well, how much work am I going to be willing to do? And what are the long consequence, long-term consequences of my not doing that work? So let's say you, you covered it with water lettuce or water hyacinth in, in defiance of the gods of the state that say you're not supposed to, um, And assume your ducks don't go in there and screw it all up. Well, what's going to happen is in our long season, with the ducks pooping in there, giving it extra nutrient, you are going to have almost 100% cover by midsummer. And the only thing you can do then is go pull it out or pull most of it out and let it grow back and probably do it again. You're probably looking at doing that three times during a season. Now, in return you're going to get a massive pile of some of the best compost known to man. But if you don't do that, the first time it freezes, all of it's going to die, decay, and sink to the bottom. Now you have a problem. So I would, again, look to emergent vegetation. If you're going to do, like, water lilies and stuff because you think they're cool, you know, you can get these great big pots, and you put your rhizomes in there, and then your water lilies grow in that pot. And then you can pull that pot out and trim off your rhizomes and sell them to people. For water gardens. But you get a rhizome in, your, in the ground of your pond, and you can end up with a half pond covered in water lilies. So you really got to think, like, how much work do I want to do here? I, I like the idea of increasing cover for your fish, but I would get on uh, forums like Pond Boss, that actually is a pretty good forum, even though it's a very old school one, and look at some of the PVC-based uh, stuff that they build. So you take like a five-gallon bucket, you put a piece of PVC pipe in it with concrete, and then that's your base of your tree. And then you take PVC fittings, and they even make some fittings you won't find at Home Depot and Lowe's to do some really cool shit, specialized ones. And you build all of this stuff, and then you just go sink it in your pond. 
A lot of crappie fishermen do this. A lot of crappie guides do this. They build these PVC structures, and then they sneak out in the darkness of morning, and they go out and they GPS mark where they put them, and then they won't let their clients use the GPS when they take a client fishing. And you can't really see it because PVC has the same density as water to uh, most modern sonar. So if you have a PVC tree down there, you won't see it with your fish finder. All right, so I would look to stuff like that. Um, I had a pond I got the, the, the privilege of managing for a while and had access to, and I would any kind, like when I would see like tore up concrete, I'd load my truck up with it, and I had markers so I knew where I was at, and I built basically an artificial reef in that, and that worked really well. Now that's going to snag if you're fishing more, but hey, it's, it's structure. So developing structure I think is an interesting idea. Uh, with plants, I would stay away from most service vegetation. Now here's the thing. It's, I, from what I remember, this is a relatively new pond. It is going to end up with like something like hornwort or something in it anyway. Sooner or later, it's going to happen, or coontail or whatever. Because aquatic birds are going to go from our public reservoirs that have this stuff in it, they're going to go in there, and sooner or later, you're going to have some sort of aquatic vegetation. And whatever that is, is whatever that is. But I think real hard about choosing the form of the destructor here. Um, the thing that I think you have an opportunity to grow that's edible, especially if you have a shallow portion of this, is water chestnut. And I can't see a world in which that becomes an invasive problem. It could be an invasive solution, but not an invasive problem. But I do think you're going to have an issue with your ducks and geese pulling them out. So I don't know. You can give that a shot, see how it works. That's about the only thing I can straight up recommend that I would do. But again, maybe some cattail, you know, with it as deep as it is, you know, there's a certain point that stuff can't grow anymore. If you go with dwarf cattail, that's more the case. Um, you can always pull some out. It's a useful plant, but I, I'd be careful otherwise. Anybody has any thoughts on this uh, that's done some stuff with vegetation in a pond, a true in-ground pond? Love to hear from you guys. Um, next up, there's an article on NPR.org. Of course, that's the right-wing nut jobs that just think all teachers suck. Oh, wait, no, 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 that's the, the mainstream liberal mouthpiece, really. Um, it says, why millions of kids can't read, and what better teaching can do about it? Um, we'll, we'll hold off on, on the better teaching, and let's just talk about the actual problem here. Um, in fact, why don't we do this? Uh, there's a kind of a podcast thing goes along with it. I'm going to give you a piece of it, because if I play the entire thing, uh, you're going to take a scratch-all or an ice pick, and you're going to insert it in your ear, and you're going to push until the pain stops, okay? Because the, the problem is obvious. The complexity that they create for a solution is just stupid, though, and I'm, I'm going to save you that, okay? And we'll come back, and we'll talk about it. Here we're just... Here we go. This is uh, what your tax dollars have been funding in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, and I'm sure many other places, on teaching children to read. Millions of American kids struggle to read. That is a big problem. But maybe the problem is not the kids themselves. The way that children are usually taught how to read does not line up with decades of evidence on how they actually learn to read. One school district figured out how wrong it was about reading and made some changes. Emily Hanford of APM Reports has the story. All right. So we're going to start doing something today that we have not done before. This is brand spanking new. 
We're in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, where six kindergartners are meeting with their teacher at a small U-shaped table. They're doing what kindergartners do these days, learning how to read and write. So let's read it together. What's it say? My pet report. Wonderful. The children are writing a report about a pet they want. They have to write down three things that pet can do. A little boy named Quinn spells bark, B-O-C, bock. He needs some help discerning all the speech sounds in that word. What's the first sound? B. We got that one. That's B. Now what's the next sound? Quinn knows the meaning of the word bark. What he needs to learn is how each sound in that word is represented by letters. How do you make the sound R? R. R. How do you write R? Do you remember? Tell me. Scientists have figured out the key to learning how to read is understanding the relationship between the sounds in words and the letters that represent those sounds. Might sound obvious, but it's not how kids in Bethlehem were being taught a few years ago. How were they being taught? District leaders didn't actually know, so they asked Kim Harper, their new supervisor of literacy, to find out. She visited teachers at one of the district's lowest-performing elementary schools, and they were talking about how kids attack words in a story. When a child came to a word she didn't know, the teacher would tell her to look at the picture and guess. The most important thing was for the child to understand the meaning of the story. So, if the kid came to the word horse, and the kid reads it as house, it's wrong. But if the kid said pony. It'd be right because pony and horse mean the same thing. Wait, what? First of all, pony and horse don't mean the same thing. And what does a kid do when there aren't any pictures? This advice to a beginning reader is based on an influential theory about reading. The theory basically says people use things like context and visual clues to read words. The theory assumes that learning to read is a natural process, and that with enough exposure to text. Kids will eventually figure out how words work. Scientists have debunked this theory, but it continues to drive typical instruction in many schools. Something else that's typical: a lot of struggling readers. In Bethlehem, fewer than 60% of third graders were scoring proficient on the state reading test. Jack Silva, the chief academic officer, wanted to do something about that. It was really, you know, looking yourself in the mirror and saying, you know, less than 60% of third graders, and me being the chief academic officer, was just okay. Let's let's go. Let's do something differently. Silva started reading the scientific research on reading. It's been around for decades, but it's not stuff he'd been taught in his own preparation to be a teacher. And he soon realized the teachers in Bethlehem didn't know the science either. So the district invested in education for its educators. Good morning, everyone.、Okay. A group of mostly first and second grade teachers is gathered in a conference room for a class on the science of reading. It's part of a year-long series of classes led by a consultant named Mary Doe Doniker. She begins today by going over speech sounds in words. Some are tricky. Tell me the first sound you hear in Eunice. Yeah. Before you get to the ooh, how about Charlotte? Teachers need a deep understanding of how sounds work in words to be able to help kids figure out the written code. How in the hell did anybody ever think this was a good idea? Seriously, how in the hell did anybody say, you know what? If the kid says pony, that's pretty good. <laughs> oh my god! And you don't even realize the real problem here. 
when we are when we are this young, we have the ability to learn at a rate that exceeds the ability we'll have to learn in 15 years. Our mind is capable of forming more and faster synapses and being able to go back and reference them when we're five and six years old than it is when we're 35. That's just known science. All right, That actually is settled science. Now, uh, is it possible that maybe we could regain that ability somehow with certain methods or exercises or supplements? Sure, but we ain't done it yet. Okay, When you learn something and you learn it to be factual, This word that says horse is the word pony at that stage in your life. It becomes something you know. Now, to teach you how to read properly, I have to convince you that something you know is in fact not true. Not something you think, something you believe that you know. Imagine this, you were born and you were named Tom at birth. You're 30 years old and I come to you and say, you are not Tom. Your name is Frank. And I can even prove it to you. I can show you you were you were the victim of a social experiment. We just called you a different name your whole life just to see how you would react to it on your 30th birthday to find out that it was all a lie. You are not named Tom. You are named Frank. How hard is it for you to accept that your name is Frank at this point? You, what you're likely to do is say you can all F yourselves. I'm Tom. I'm staying Tom. And since I'm a grown-ass adult... I can make that legally who I am, and you can all go screw. But this is a metaphor, right? This is not an exact exchange. Just think about the cognitive dissonance there. So you're, re you're, you're training the mind in an improper thing and then attempting to alter it later. You have to be an idiot to do this. And then the, the complexity of this, where I cut it off, I was like, my people will hate me if I make them listen to all of that was how hard they made it seem to teach a kid how to read. Teachers need to understand the complex structures of sounds. I hope you understand the complex structures of sound if you have a bachelor's degree and an almighty teaching certificate from the almighty state. I hope you understand how the sound R, the sound that an R makes. I hope you can help a child sound out a freaking word If we have baptized you as holier-than-thou, educator of all, and so much better than the homeschool mom that just sits down and goes, C-spot, run. C-spot, run fast. C-spot, run fast and roll over. And their kid is kicking your other kid's ass in spelling bees and science fairs and shit like that 10 years down the road. This is the Language is complex, but somehow most people learn to read by understanding these are the letters, Here's how they go together. Here's some basic rules of freaking language. This is what this thing sounds like. This is what this other thing sounds like. When these two things are together, they sound a little bit different. And once you learn that, it's a code, and it unlocks the ability to read shit. And you can sit here and go, the theory is wrong. I'm reading right off that article. Yeah, no shit. Telling a kid that when they read the word horse is pony is wrong. The fact that we needed a supervisor of literacy, or what the hell ever this person's called, to figure this out. Tells us that the, the school system is effed. The fact that this could ever even be in place. The fact that, I mean, if my kid came home and I was like helping with their homework and I said, the pony, I'm like, that's not pony, that's horse. The teacher says it's right. Oh my God, that teacher and me are having a kind of conversation you don't want to have with me. 
This is why I've given up on, on public education. There's a lot of other reasons, but this is a big one right here. The fact that some of the things these people do, they actually think is a good idea, that somebody actually has to explain to them why it's wrong. And how does the teacher, with a college education, who's passed whatever stupid-ass test you have to do to say that you're a teacher and get your license or whatever the hell they call it now, your certificate, how does the teacher say, well, I'm going to do this. This seems like a great, uh, this is how they trained me. This is what I'm going to do. And if you write me and you say, you don't understand, Jack, when you're a teacher, you have to do it, I don't want to hear your stupidity. I don't want to hear your stupidity. Because if you'll do this, if you'll do this because you're told, if you'll tell the kid they're right when they read the word horse as pony because they saw a picture, you shouldn't be teaching anybody anything at all infinity and let's go on before I have a freaking aneurysm. And that was freaking not the other words for something you get all butthurt about it. So John from Moore Park sent me this article, another NPR article. Uh, it, here's one quote from it. He, it says, among the most prominent, this is about the Green New Deal from Oxia Cortez. Uh, among the most prominent, the deal calls for meeting 100% of the power demands in the United States through clean, renewable, and zero emission energy sources. The ultimate goal is for it to stop using fossil fuels entirely as well as to transition away from nuclear energy. And John says, is this even possible? Um, there's a bunch of ways to answer that question. I know there's a whole bunch of people out there that immediately knee-jerk reacted in and said, no, it's absolutely not possible. Why? Why? Now, I didn't say that it's possible the way they want to do it or under the 10-year timeline they've laid out. Why is it not possible that technology and innovation will lead us to a point where we can generate enough energy that we don't ever have to rely on nuclear or fossil fuels ever again? Why is it not possible? Because Glenn Beck says so? Because, uh, what's his name, uh, Sean Hannity says so? Because you saw a meme that showed a picture of a, a rusted-out, uh, crappy-ass windmill that told you that it takes 20 years for a wind machine to produce as much energy as it takes to make it, and you didn't fact-check it, you don't know the average windmill produces more energy than used to create it in six months? Is that why you say it's not possible? Again, this is not... He's advocating for this idiot? No, I'm not. I'm not even advocating that we should do this. I'm answering the question, is it possible? There was a very open-ended question. It didn't say, is it, because it, the quote he gave me doesn't say within 10 years. I know the document does, because unlike many of you who think it says things it doesn't, I actually read it, by the way. There's a lot of things, people say that document says that it doesn't say. Some is because people thought it was funny and wanted to troll Ocasio-Cortez, which I think is funny, and put stuff in there that wasn't true. But some of it's because you were told what it meant versus what it said instead of determining what it meant when it said it for yourself. For instance, they want to ban air travel, right? How many are you sure that have heard about this thing that what they want to do is they want to ban air travel? Doesn't say that. Doesn't say that. Not what it says. It said, make them not necessary. There's a big thing between rendering something obsolete and banning it. Now, government usually makes something obsolete by banning it and thereby produces more of it than we ever had. You'll get no argument from me there. But that's not, if we're going to talk about what it says, let's talk about what it says. So is it possible to develop enough alternative energy that the United States could produce all its energy requirements from sustainable, renewable energy sources? Yes. In my lifetime, 
Probably not. But, I, again, I think people are underestimating this idiot. She is either an idiot with some puppet master's hand way up her ass, or she's playing the fool like Hamlet. I don't know which one yet. She's so stupid in the way she sounds that it's hard to believe she's acting that way on purpose, but it doesn't mean she's not. Okay? Um, there is something going on here that people do not understand. This I, I talked about it last week. This is Trump's formula. You take an extreme position. This is what we want. Oh, you're an idiot. There's no way that's never going to happen. There's no way that Mexico will ever pay for the wall. Well, Mexico's not actually going to write a check for the wall. We're going to you know, have a new, uh, a new trade deal. It's going to be more than enough to fund the wall. Oh. And we're going to build a giant concrete fence from sea to shining sea. Wall, I mean, right? We don't really need that big of a wall. We just want this you know, couple hundred miles of fence where the people that do the job say we need it. So even the people that hate Trump at this point are going, you know what? That actually sounds reasonable. The people that can get the hatred out of their, their mouth for five seconds will at least acknowledge that it sounds, even though they don't think maybe we should do it, it sounds reasonable. Many of those people would not thought it sounded reasonable if it was the original proposal. Many would have, but many wouldn't. When you take an extreme position, you move the conversation in the direction that you want the conversation to go. And again, I'm not advocating for anything with the state involved. Right? The state's done enough, then we need to start doing less. But we also need to understand what's going on here. This has become a dominant discussion. People are talking about these subjects. We were not talking about these subjects six months ago. And you use either, she's either a convenient fall guy, right? But this young, fresh face that can, you know, it doesn't matter how stupid she sounds. They already know she's stupid. So let's let her take the extreme position. And you're going to see an awful lot more government intervention in these spaces. It won't look like this document. This document is a steering document. It's the Trump formula. Take an extreme position. Generate the conversation. Get the people on the opposite end of that conversation to go more in your direction and then compromise to the direction in which they've moved. It's actually pretty slick negotiating. Is it possible? No. Here's what I do believe is possible. It is not only possible but probable that the United States will probably within 15 years at the, outs at the inside, 20 at the outside, be generating 50% or more of its energy from things that do not involve the use of fossil fuels. Because economics. Because innovation. Because. That's why. Because desire. I, I don't think that if you came up with a way that you could make a solar panel array and put it on somebody's roof and it would produce even 20% of their power and you could do that for $2,000 that anybody would be upset about it. And I think you'd sell a hell of a lot of them. We can't do it yet, unfortunately. But I think we're moving to where we're going to be able to. Now, will it be $2,000? I don't know. Probably not. But is you know, inflation, et cetera, adjustment relative and how much you can do. If I could put solar panels on my roof 
and they would cut my electric bill by 200 bucks and I a month, right? If I could do it enough to produce $200 and I have anything less than five years to pay them back, I'm doing it tomorrow. I'm doing it tomorrow. Okay, if if we get there and people like me that can afford it do it immediately. Like, oh, shit, get on out here. I don't want to be on a waiting list. We will drive more scale into the market. We'll drive the price further down. And a year from now, people will have a faster payback or a bigger bang for the buck. And, and we're going to go there. We're going to go there. With panels, we're almost there. With storage, that's been the weak spot for a long time. But that's that's coming, guys. That's coming. And you can post all the pictures you want of some strip mining pit in Australia out in the middle of the desert. Um, it ain't good for the environment, but it ain't nowhere near as bad as people claim. And it's certainly not as bad as a gazillion ba barrels of oil dumping into the ocean. It really isn't. So, and, and we're going to come up with more and more ways that, yes, that, that rare earth element is going to come out of the ground, but it's going to get used over and over and over again. It's not going to be uh, considered inexpendable in time. We're going to develop that type of technology. Uh, as I said Friday, I think actually most of the stuff in the Green New Deal that doesn't involve the government portion, but the direction of humankind is not just possible but probable, but it will take a long time to happen, and it will require for it to work not centralization but decentralization, which is a move instead of toward more statism, more toward libertarianism and anarchism. That's the actual path that gets us there. Uh, next question. Joe asked me, is there such a thing as an unpickable lock looking for a best deadbolt for my two outside doors? Any suggestions? Um, there's some locks that are hard to pick, but I wouldn't call them unpickable. But they're really expensive. They're really expensive. Um, uh, the, the, the big thing to take away here, Joe, is that locks keep honest people out the way that fences keep honest people out, the way that gates keep honest people out. If you want to get into a door, the lock slows you down, makes it more difficult, and reduces, you know, if I know your neighbor's house is unlocked and yours is locked, unless there's a whole big reason, like I know you have a whole shitload of gold under your bed or something, I'm going into your neighbor's house. That, that's the purpose of a lock. There is a way to take even a cheap lock, like a quick set, and make it unpickable. It requires, it, the, the video I'm going to give you says it requires a dollar in parts. It's more like ten dollars in parts. Because the guy's a locksmith and he has all this shit there and he's talking about the things that he doesn't have when he says a dollar. But about ten bucks. And basically what you do, and it's very hard to explain verbally, but I'll do my best, is you modify the lock itself. So when you pick a lock, and it was really amazing to me how easy it is to learn the first time I did it, you usually use something called a tension wrench, which is just a little pick that grabs on and puts pressure to turn the lock in the direction that the key would turn the lock. And you use a rake, is what they call it, and you go up and you push the pins. And there's just pins up there, and as you push those pins in, with that tension, the lock starts to rotate. And once you get the pin in far enough and enough rotation, that pin stays up. And if I get all the pins, then it rotates, and boom, I'm in. And it took me about 15 minutes the first time I picked a lock to pick a lock, and it took me about 30 seconds to pick it the second time. And it was very eye-opening. And, and my buddy Brian over at ITS Tacticals, the one that got me to do it, and it blew me away. 
What you can do, though, is you can modify the lock so there's a second set of places for the pins to fall into. And if there are keys in there, they won't. Because the key keeps the pins up. But once you go past the, 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 the cavities that the pins insert in to maintain the lock in a locked position, there's nothing to hold them anymore. It's the cylinder wall itself. So they come around to the spot where there's some holes, and they all pop into there. And the lock is now permanently locked. The only way you can get the lock unlocked at this point is to drill it out and remove it. Or if you can get into the house through another door, you can take it back apart from the inside and put it back the way that you had it. The advantage to this is that if you come home, you'll be able to look at your lock and know somebody tried to get in. The disadvantage is if you only have one door, they try to pick both doors, you can't get in your own house now without drilling a hole in. You're going to have to resort to something like breaking a window and reaching around and, oh, wait a minute, you can do that? You see what I'm saying? Um, the reality is most of the time if people want to get in your house, they're going to get in anyway. And if you have an alarm system, well, then they would trip that when they went in with picking the lock, right? So I, I think that, you know, there, and there are other locks that use technologies like those pins kind of are easily rolled off to one side or the other. So when you're trying to pick it, it makes it more difficult. But even some supposedly very difficult ones I've played with doing some lock sport and was able to eventually get into them. Um, so I don't think we should overthink this. Use good quality locks. If you want to take an extra step like this, you can. My instinct is it's more likely to fail in some way and cause you a problem than actually prevent somebody from breaking in. Uh, just my thoughts. Um, a sign that says, warning, venomous reptiles kept on premises. This seemed to be the best security thing I ever did for myself when I had an office. Um, I had an office that I rented to do the podcast out of for the years we lived in Arkansas. And we started having a rash of break-ins. It was like in a strip. Uh, this, this place that my landlord had one of the, the buildings and there was about 10 of us in this strip and they all got broken into and I put up a sign and that's what it said warning research with, with venomous reptiles conducted in this facility please use caution when entering don't touch anything stuff like that and and then no one ever broke in everybody else got broke in and I didn't and if anything is there were snakes in there if you would have like, kind of looked in you, I had some snakes I kept there but they, they were harmless uh, but stupid is as stupid does, I guess. Um, I don't know that you can definitely say any lock is unpickable, but you can render a lock unusable so that it can't be picked. Another way I've seen people do this um, is to basically put nuts on the lock screws on the inside of a deadbolt. So now, even if you pick it, you can't turn it because the little thing that you grab to manually lock and unlock it on the inside can't get past the bolt. Um, I don't see the practicality there, though, because you can't get in with your key. Uh, there was a locksmith that explained that process on the Internet uh, on a video, and basically the people ended up somehow locking. The other way they could get in, they couldn't get in, and he had to come out and drill their lockout for them because that's what they had done. So I, I wouldn't advise that. Uh, next up, uh, from Garner, Garner Arms on the blog, uh, referencing a discussion we had last week. He said, just wanted to, and just to catch people up that may not have heard it, guy wrote me, very concerned. He's in Vermont or New Hampshire, and Massachusetts raised the minimum wage to $15 an hour. It's going to get kicking over two years. 
It's right on the border and was afraid this would ruin his business because he wouldn't be able to get people to work for him because they're all going to go to Massachusetts to make an extra $2 an hour. And I said, I don't think it's going to happen. And I'll, you know, I won't go any further because that's enough to catch you up. But this is what Garner Arms says. Just wanted to share this with a gentleman who was concerned about the neighboring state raising its minimum wage and the effect it will have on his business. I live in a very similar situation. The state I am is left-leaning. I'm only about 15 minutes from a state that is far more conservative and has a much lower minimum wage. The state, has a low, the state that has a lower minimum wage is developing more and more businesses right along the border, while the town that's on the other side of the border, literally highway splits the two towns, is very stagnant. I actually think the gentleman who is in the more fiscally conservative state may see benefit in the long run is more business and money moved to where it is treated well. Just an observation. I wish him the best of luck. And, folks, do you know what we call that? We call that federalism. That's federalism. That's how this country's supposed to work. There shouldn't be a federal minimum wage. If there is going to be a minimum wage, it should be set by the state. Now, if the, if the federal government, it, it, obviously I think it should be a lot smaller than it is, but if the federal government wants to set a wage that is a minimum wage for federal employees, I would find that constitutional. And effectively, whether they stated the wage or not, whatever their minimum would, would be their minimum, right? So there's going to have to be something somewhere that says that anybody that comes into a position is paid at least X, and that would effectively be federal wage, for, which every company sets a minimum wage for their company. Walmart has a minimum wage for employees at Walmart. And guess what? It's higher than the federal minimum wage. They pay better than federal minimum wage. Costco has their own minimum wage. And I think it's something like, I want to say Costco is something like $14 an hour for, for you know, full-time and, and part-time employees as well. I think like some of the people that do samples and stuff, they're paid under a different structure. They're not full-on employees that work at the store. Maybe they are, maybe they aren't, but somebody told me that. But, you know, every entity has a minimum wage. Like if, if somebody, and, and that's the, here's the mindset I had. Like when I was running Franklin Spirico Media with Neil Franklin, We wouldn't hire somebody for less than $30,000 a year. And people would go, well, why? Because anybody that's not worth $30,000 a year doesn't qualify for any of the things we need done. So it wasn't like, you know, we have a minimum wage, thirty grand a year. When I, when I interviewed you and hired you, I would pay you based on what you were willing to work for, what I think your value was, what it would take to get you to come work for me, make you happy, what I thought was fair, what you thought was fair. All of that would factor into it. But in my head, there was a minimum, and that is if I wouldn't pay this person thirty grand a year, I can't use them. So every entity has that. With state, the state getting involved, what it does is it artificially interferes with that process. And it does create barriers to entry for people that are lower skilled. I don't think the existing federal minimum wage does that anymore. And I think that alone proves that there is no need for a federal minimum wage. And what I mean by that is, Most jobs don't pay minimum wage, even in states that do not have an adjusted minimum wage. There's only about a million, 1.2 million workers in America that make federal minimum wage. The number can be pushed as high as 1.8 million, but it's a dishonest number because it includes certain classes of servers and stuff and, and dis, does not include their tips and other compensation. It's only about a million people in a country of 300 million people that even make minimum wage. Very few people that have a full-time job make minimum wage. Now, that was not the case 10 years ago. And it certainly wasn't the case 15 years ago. It really wasn't. And that's because minimum wage at the time was high enough 
that it was in the range of what entry-level employment would be anyway. Today, Taco Bell, down the road, has a sign-up paying $11.50 an hour for starting workers. $11.50 an hour to work at Taco Bell. With benefits, by the way. Yeah, 401k, all kinds of crap. Right? Chick-fil-A is paying $2 an hour more. $2 an hour more. Than, than that than, than Taco Bell. And I guess you can see which one gives you better service when you go, by the way. So when, when people are working at fast food places for three, four, five dollars over minimum wage, minimum wage has effectively become meaningless. And the market has shown you the reality that we don't need it. If you abolished federal minimum wage tomorrow, you just said it's not a thing anymore, states run their own shit. And states like Texas said, well, we don't have one. Do whatever the hell you want. What do you think they're going to do? You think Taco Bell's going to start paying the people they're paying $12 an hour? Two? Do you really think that's going to happen? Why are they paying $12 now when they could pay $7.50 or whatever it is? Why? Because they can't get people to work for that little. They can't get good people anyway. So they pay what the market bears. If we let states do this, then you're going to have your 50 laboratories of liberty. Some will have nothing. Some will have something that's so low it's meaningless anyway. You know, I, I, if the state of Texas said, we're going to raise the minimum wage to $8.50 an hour in, in our state. We're going to be higher than the federal minimum. Nine bucks even. Say nine bucks. We're going to raise the federal minimum wage to nine dollars. There would be people, oh my God, this is going to be a catastrophe. It would, it would do almost nothing. Because almost nobody's working for minimum wage anyway. And if you are, in the words of Sula Priest from the Expert Council, if you don't want minimum wage, stop being a minimum person. You know? Really, I need to make a shirt with that on it. Anyway, I don't think that this type of thing hurts the states that don't do it. And I think that you're going to see, actually... The exact opposite, exactly what this guy said. The states that neighbor these states, they're going to attract a lot of businesses. You know, because generally, not only does that state not have that increased minimum wage, they have lower taxes. So what you're telling me is I can, I can move here, I can reduce my labor costs on my entry-level employees, and I can pay less taxes. And other people are moving there too, so you're growing my market for me. Yeah, I like that. And that's really that's really where we're headed. I'm like, you know, if Oklahoma increased the minimum wage, which I don't think they would, if Oklahoma, Louisiana, and Arkansas did uh, significantly, you know, fight for 15 or whatever, I think it'd be a, a boom for the already booming Texas economy. There, I don't know many people in Texas that have a full time job that have been working at it for more than a couple years in their industry that make less than 15 dollars an hour. I'm not saying I don't know any. But even the ones that I do know are making really close. One person springs to mind is making fourteen seventy five an hour. You know, and 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 good at what they do, but not great. I and, and, and in a field that there's tons of competition in, a low level medical uh, thing like a, a, a medical assistant market, and could make more if that person would go to work somewhere that's not quite as comfortable to be in as the place that they're in. They're choosing comfort. Over income, and that's fine. That's the market. But yeah, I don't, I don't know a whole bunch of people making minimum wage, and you can't show me a whole bunch of people making minimum wage. 
And when you do show me somebody making minimum wage that's not a 16-year-old kid, I'm going to tell you there's a reason. And it's not because evil capitalists don't want to pay them. Uh, let's take, uh, I think we got one more. We're going to actually talk about the thing that I skipped last week. So this is an article that's on CBS News, and uh, it came out before the government shutdown ended. So, of course, it told the sob stories of all the federal employees that, you know, went without a paycheck. It's pretty much what most of them, they went without a paycheck. Um, and, and it came from that standpoint. But it did point out that what this showed, and this is what I said early on, it showed the bigger problem. The number one, government employees tend to be so apathetic toward taking care of themselves, they don't even understand the advantages they had. Because any government employee can be a member of a federal credit union, and all of them were a available to go get a zero-interest loan for their pay that would be covered by their back pay when they got their back pay, which they did. So there was no reason for anybody to be you know, selling an extra vial, a vial of insulin or some other stupid shit like we heard about, unless they were just willfully ignorant. Or stupid, and at least you can cure ignorance. The willful ignorance is difficult to cure. Um, you can't really fix stupid, in the words of Ron White. But this bigger problem is even the fact that people live this way is the problem. Now look, if you're 22 and you just got your first apartment and your first job, I understand that not getting paid next week can totally destroy everything you finally got going in your life. I get that. There is a place where we are precarious in our lifestyle, where we, we just got there, and generally every time you kind of level up, the way we do it in America anyway, which is really before we should, you're in that position again. It takes time to adjust to that new standard of living. So the 22-year-old that's got their first place right out of college or trade school or whatever and they finally got a job, and when they got the job, they had enough income. Maybe they got a parent to co-sign with them to get that first apartment, and they've moved in, and they're paying, their, they're paying all their bills, but they just started. I get it. Okay, you've been doing that for five years, and you can't go one paycheck without being in that position. You're living your life wrong. You can be as mad at me as you want, but you're living your life wrong. When I saw this headline, though, what hit me about it because it's obviously true, was the fact that the number has basically remained unchanged since I was in high school. As much as I rail on the, the, the government school system, part of it is because I know it was better not that long ago. I'm not that old. I'm getting old, but I'm not that old. And I had some really good teachers in high school. And we had an economics teacher who really went out of his way to show you how much money you would make in your life, even if you made minimum wage. Like, if you factored your entire life, how much money you would make, and the fact that most people don't have any money, in spite of the fact that they make quite a bit of money, is telling to the problems that we have. And this guy was really good about pointing out things that were going on around us, like the way your parents are living. And he said, I know that four out of ten of you, if both of your parents, if they're both working, lost a job in a month, would be looking for another place to live. Everybody looks around like, is it me? Is it me? And honestly, where we lived, it's probably more than four out of ten. But he, he, I remember him using this statistic in 1987. 40% of Americans live a paycheck or two away from poverty. They live check to check. Now that's, God, I hate to say it, but this is the 30 years, right? And this hasn't changed. Because this is the culture we live with in America. 
And it, it's always amazed me. I've had people that say, you don't understand, you don't understand. And, and I'll say, listen, let's sit down with Excel and let's, let's build a budget for your income and your expenses. And almost inevitably, not every time, but almost inevitably, when we get done with the non-discretionary expenses, the things they have to pay for, they really can't do anything about, you know, your rent, your mortgage, your insurance, your gas to go to work and all, they're kind of dumbfounded about how big the how much money they actually do have. But yet they never have any money. And then we throw in something like, well, what's reasonable to put into savings, like $150 a month? Well, that seems like a lot, but I don't know. So you stick it in there and the numbers still work, and you say, well, you know, if you did that, you're, 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 you'd be at least saving $1,800 a year. If you did that for 10 years, you'd have $18,000. That's not enough. But you've been doing this for six years, and you don't have anything. You, know, you, got, you got a couple hundred dollars in savings, and you end up not really keeping in savings because you transfer at the, the end of every cycle to cover your bills. Where's your money going? So then you move to the non-discretionary stuff, you know, going out to eat, uh, shopping for stuff you don't really need, stuff like that. And inevitably, if you say, just, just guess what you think you spend, when you get done, there's still money left. Including the money you then threw into savings. There's still money left. And not a lot. There's still money left. You go, well, where's the rest of the money going? And the numbers they're pulling out of their head, oh, we probably spend this much going out to eat, we probably, are wrong. Because that's the only explanation. The money went somewhere. And if people will, will harness that, and this is the thing that, it's like going to the dentist. Like, nobody wants to do it, but you know you need to. <laughs> I don't think you have to live on a budget like this your whole life. We all live on a budget. See, first of all, we all live on a budget. Because that budget is when there's no money left and nobody will loan us any more money, we're out. And that that prevents us from you know only going so far into debt and only, still in, only having so much stuff. So we already have a budget. Then the budget is either is it a structured budget that is beneficial to us or is it a, a stupid budget that just means spend whatever you have. And if you will harness your income when you're young and you will develop these habits and if you will separate investment and savings, that's one of the most important things because people think they're saving for their retirement and they think savings is all the same. And what that means is they put 3% on the contribution form at work to their 401k. And they picked four mutual funds that the smiling guy said to pick. But they still have no savings. They have money in a tax-deferred retirement account that's not going to be enough at that contribution rate. But at least they have something. But they don't have a savings line item. If you have a savings line item, then when something happens, it's not that catastrophic. And you, you get through it. We live in one of the richest societies, not in the world, as in today, but that has ever existed in the world. The standard of living of a person on Section 8 housing and food stamps blows away the standard of living of the merchant class of 200 years ago. Now, it's done with stolen money, I'll grant you that, but that's it is what it is. We live in a society where I don't advise you to live this way, but if you had to, you could literally not starve on $200 a year eating ramen noodles three times a day. I really don't think that you should. All I'm saying is 
you could do it for a month if you had to. And yet we live in a society where people start taking shit to the pawn shop and selling it on eBay and Craigslist when they miss a single paycheck. That's part of the crap that's in this horrible article that will lower your IQ to borderline retarded if you read the whole thing. It really will. Because of the, we do not teach the concept that preparedness is a virtue. It's, that's all that it is. There is no other reason for it other than we do not teach people that being prepared for things to go wrong is virtuous. We teach them that saying there are 27 genders or whatever is a virtue. We teach them that saying that white men are the cause of all problems is a virtue. We teach them that taking 97 steps to solve a simple arithmetic problem with Common Core is virtuous. We teach them that not having males act like males is virtuous. And then we wonder why we have problems. We took the grasshopper and the ant. It was a simple story. It was very easy to understand. That showed us that it was up to us to prepare for hard times. And we turned it into a Disney cartoon that was stupid. And we wonder why 40% of Americans live one paycheck from poverty. I am actually encouraged by the number. The fact that the number is the same as it was in the 1980s is encouraging to me. And you might say, why? Because it should be much worse. Based on the way we've been living, it, it should be much worse. And I'm going to tell you the surprising reason that I think that it's, it's leveled off and is going to start to get better. The generation that has been most kicked in the head of any generation during my lifetime, including my own, and we got kicked in the head pretty hard at slackers and shit like that back in the early 90s, um, the millennials. The millennials are saving their freaking money. Now, I know you see the stupid college girl with the 75 nose rings and stuff going, I can't even find a job and I have two degrees and one's in bitterness studies and one's in gender studies and I don't understand why none of these horrible white men want to give me a job. I know that you see that held up, but they will always hold up the extremes of stupidity and heroism to you. That's always what they show you. It's always what they show you. That's important. Think about that when we get to today's song. And people will always present themselves as being amazing. And if they're stupid, they will look amazingly stupid when they do that. But in general, this is the generation that's been called the Ben Franklin generation. They don't trust the stock market. And they're saving their money in cash, which is just fine because that initial savings, you're better off work extra hours and consider that your return and keep the money safe. They're working their ass off. We have people riding into this show that are buying their first homes for cash. You think they're 50 or do you think they're 30? Which one do you think they are? I think this generation that's been the most kicked of any is turning the corner. They grew up with parents that were either late, late boomers or early Gen Xers insulating them from everything, and it caused them a lot of problems. But I think as they mature and as they get older, they're realizing the opportunities that they have. And they realize that, you know, as they come into their later 20s where they actually have some sort of a skill developed, like, gee, no, not everybody didn't just give you shit when you were 18. But now that you've actually proven yourself competent at 29, there's a lot of opportunity. They're realizing that they will work harder and longer than the people that are 20 years older than them. Just like we did when we were 29. And they're doing it. 
And I think they're actually going to make this country a better place. And I actually think it's this next generation, the ones that are little kids like my grandparents right now. Huh, let me tell you something. The generation, and I know I'm part of it, so it makes it easy for me to say good things about myself. But the generation that knows how to get shit done that's around right now is the Gen Xers that are still young enough to do it. All right? I know World War II generation, all, but the World War II generation is mostly gone. And the boomers were that turning of the generation before them were so tough that what they got handed to them was easy. And as they went about doing that, they raised us, the Gen Xers. And we were the generation that raised ourselves. We came home from school, nobody was there. And that wasn't uncommon. I mean, it wasn't like, oh, well, one or two. No, it was the majority of kids. Well, they called us latchkey kids. We took care of our little brothers and little sisters, or we were looked after by older brothers and older sisters. We largely raised ourselves. There was nowhere we couldn't get on a bicycle. If you watch, if you watch sci-fi things like on Netflix, like Stranger Things, take all the monsters out, but the way those kids live, that's how we really lived. That's how we were. And the boomers that were our parents worked. We lived that way, and the greatest influence that we had on us was the grandparents, and those were the World War II and Great Depression-era grandparents. So we raised ourselves, and we had a huge influence by great-uncles, uncles, grandparents, etc., that were World War II generation, that were tough. That when I was a little kid and I was mowing the lawn and I ran over a wasp nest, I had no shirt on, I was like 11 or 12, and I ran over this, 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 this wasp nest in the ground, and a damn wasp came up and it stung me right in the chest, and I smacked it and killed it, and I shut the lawnmower off, and I had this dead wasp in my hand, and it swelled up like half an apple, You know, right on my breastbone, almost immediately. I was like, ah, running to my grandfather, right? <laughs> and I show him this this wasp, but I show him my chest, and I can't even speak. I'm like, ah, and he like looks over at it. He's got his camel no filter and his whiskey, and he's listening to polka music on the porch. He goes, and he didn't say the the the, uh, the censored version I'm about to use. He goes, "F it hurts, don't it? Go see your grandma. She'll put something on it, and then get back out there and finish cutting the grass." <laughs> you go inside that. They dump a cure comb on or some shit. It hurts even worse. Says, I told you to put your shirt on like it would have bit me through the shirt. And five minutes later, I'm back out there pushing the lawnmower going, <laughs> right? That is us. We're the grandparents now. We're the grandparents now. This next generation, they're getting raised by their parents. I don't ever want to take that away from parents. But we're the old, crusty bastards. We're the old crusty bastards now. And we are going to teach those kids, whether you want it or not, you can take your liberal arts degree, and we are going to counterbalance that, and that generation is going to be something amazing. I just know it. And they're going to have a confluence of problems and opportunities that's going to be awesome. I'm not saying not to be prepared anymore. In fact, this whole segment started out with how screwed up we are because we're not. What I'm saying is 
the absolute doomsday prediction that mankind is doomed and all the bullshit. That's been said since since civilization figured out how to create language. Before someone screwed up how to learn how to read, people were saying that. We are a resilient species. We don't prepare because the end is coming. We prepare because it isn't. If I really thought the end was coming, I wouldn't do this show. I wouldn't waste my time. I would have made an ass load of money other ways. Those of you that know my background know I could do it. And I would be off screwing off and getting drunk every day. I'd be floating around in a boat somewhere high if I thought the end was coming. Because why not? No. No, we prepare for tomorrow because we expect to be here for it and to live through it. My thoughts. Anyway, with that, if you guys like the show and the work that I do, remember one of the ways you can help support us is become a member of the MSB. You'll get a lot of great discounts. You can go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on members. You want a sale? You want to get, get it in on, on a discounted price? Join the email list. Do it today because after tomorrow I'm going to take off the little thing that I added to the bottom of the daily email that tells you you can get a discount. It's a really good one, too. How do you get on the email list? Go to the survivalpodcast.com, click on subscribe, and you can do it there. It is a sale. It's a very short-term sale, and it is only being done that way. It's the only way you would even know about it is to be on the mail list. So if you're not on the mail list, get on the mail list. I don't want spam. I don't spam. I send a daily email of everything posted on the blog, and you can unsubscribe anytime you want to. And no, I don't share my customer list because that's stupid business practices. Yes, I don't do it because, oh, my God, it's unethical. I mean, that's one reason I do it. My bigger reason is it's dumb. Why would I want to give another company my customers? That's stupid. That's not a good way to do things. It really isn't. Um, that's the quick buck for the person that doesn't think there's going to be tomorrow. Says I think there's going to be tomorrow. Uh, I want to preserve what I have. Anyway, uh, the other way you can do your online shopping at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z.com. Uh, product I got for you today is a product that saved my butt so many times since I got it that I, I can't help but recommend it. It is a portable 12-volt air compressor from a company called Viair, V-I-A-I-R. Uh, I brought this around today because, number one, the smaller one, the 300P, is on sale for $129. It's normally $150. That's a good price. It's worth the full price. So it's on sale, and the 300P will do 99% of you. It's all you need for your vehicles. It would actually get me by, but I have a really big truck with really big tires, so I bought the 450P, which is more for like RVs and big trucks and stuff, uh, and it's uh, almost 300 bucks. And I know you might be thinking, Jack, I saw these little portable air compressors at Walmart for $29. Why don't I get that? Because it doesn't work worth shit, that's why. Because you can't rely on it. You can't count on it when you need it. But this you can. These damn things will friggin' near shoot nails as an air compressor. They're that good. And the, the other reason I brought them around today, I always had one problem with these air compressors. The hose they come with. They came with a hose that was very much like kind of when you buy a stock uh, air compressor accessory kit, that yellow one that eventually gets brittle and breaks. It came with one of those. And I upgraded mine to a black braided one. I guess Viair probably got tired of, uh, of filling warranties, and they went and switched all their compressors. They don't even make that yellow hose anymore uh, to the upgraded hose, and they didn't raise the price. Um, there is nothing that can save your ass more on the road than a portable air compressor and a plug kit. Uh, you can find out more at tspaz.com. Just looking at the most current reviews, you can go to the main website, scroll down, and see the Viar review. Uh, but I really recommend that you have a portable air compressor as part of your vehicle kit. It's not the first thing that I would say you need in your vehicle preparedness kit, but it's, it's, it would be a core critical component thereof. 
Uh, with that, let's go ahead and talk about the song of the day today. John Adam sets these up, and he sent me an email with the next you know few weeks. And when I got to this song today, it said, I get, a f I get the feeling you probably hate this group, but it's a good message, and it's one of my favorite songs. And, uh, you know, it's Oingo Boingo. And I don't hate Oingo Boingo. I don't love them either, though. And, and you know, they're kind of their Thompson twins, that whole 80s kind of, before techno was a thing, it was kind of like techno pop. Uh, you know, it's kind of like what makes you think 1980s if you didn't actually live in the 1980s. And I, I'm not in love with it. But some of that music I actually like. I don't have a Pandora channel built on it or anything, but I can tolerate it and, and, and what have you. This song actually does have a really good message, though. And it, it is absolutely in, in the vogue of that sound. That sound that I'm talking about, and you know what it is. Um, but the song's called Out of Control, and it's, it's really a suicide prevention song. One of the comments I saw on the video on YouTube was, my God, why don't high school guidance counselors play this song? And I, I don't, the only thing I think of is for that kid is because they want to kill themselves too. I mean, it's probably got to be one of the hardest jobs and most unappreciated jobs there is. And like when I think about like being a high school guidance counselor, When I was in high school, there were two guidance counselors for the whole school. And my graduating class was going to be about 300, ended up being about 400 because they closed another high school and combined it to ours my graduating year. So you say 1,200 kids, two people, how much guidance counseling can they really be doing? And, and, and being fair to them, I'm not saying like they suck, I'm saying being fair to them, so that's probably why. But this song, basically the message of this song is don't Take that way out. Don't do it. And understand that however you're feeling right now, every person around you felt that way at some point. I think it's a very important message. And, you know, I mentioned how some of the things we talked about today spin into this song. Social media, I think, is probably killing kids. I don't want to get rid of it. Don't take it wrong way. I want to explain it to them, and I want to make this part of parenting. And it's not, because parents don't really even understand this themselves a lot yet. Because the kids are way more into this than most parents are. When we were kids, I'm talking about my generation, right? Gen X. We'd see Bobby get a new bike. And I want a new bike. I can't get a new bike. Bobby got a new bike. It's not fair. My dad doesn't make as much money as Bobby's dad. And I want a new bike and I can't have one. And there was that. But we also saw Bobby on his new bike. And three or four weeks, his bike wasn't new anymore. And Bobby couldn't ride the bike worth shit anyway, and I could still blow Bobby away with my three-year-old mongoose. And everybody wanted my, my bike when I got my bike, but I have it still, and now it's not that great anymore. And we, there was a real-world thing to there, right? And we knew that Bobby wasn't that happy with his new bike. When everybody's Snapchatting, Instagram and stuff, they, they seldom come out and say, my life sucks. They show you all the great things, and they use photo filters and they angles and stuff. And so now... I think young people have an unrealistic expectation of how happy they're supposed to be. Like, why can't I be as happy as everybody else? Because they aren't either, okay? Because they're not either. And as I said earlier when we were talking about this subject a, a couple of weeks ago, the, the thing that really tips it over for people that choose to harm themselves or to leave life is the belief that it won't ever be any better. And I think that it's really easy to believe that if you're convinced that everybody else is happy but you. 
I think understanding that however you feel, almost everybody on the planet could, if they tried, empathize with you. Because they've been there. They've been to the dark place. They've been to the place where like it's just not worth it anymore. But we have to get away from a point where people get there so easily. This is even before all this crap that we were talking about with social media and all. I had a friend one time. We had a, 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 a car accident. Um, he fell asleep at the wheel. I was sleeping because it was my turn. He went to sleep too. It wasn't his turn. He had a guardrail that bent his tie rod and put a dent in his truck. It was three o'clock in the morning and we were in the middle of Kansas. It sucked. But it, I mean, we were alive. It wasn't like the truck was totaled. It was still running. It just couldn't go anywhere. We're going to get a tow truck and he's got insurance. And he said, well, we're standing around this highway and I'm like, Shit, I can't have this right now. I should just walk out in front of a car and kill myself. And he was halfway serious. Because his insurance was going to go up, and he wasn't going to be able to pay his bills and whatever. Like You don't even know what's going to happen yet. Relax. Now imagine you take that predisposition, and this person struggled with um, depression and narcissism his whole life. What people don't understand about narcissists, most narcissists hate themselves. They build up a huge image of themselves that they don't actually believe, and they have self-loathing. That's that's a thing. You take somebody with that kind of predisposition, you put them in this world where every around, around them looks like everything's perfect. Nah. Everybody around you has felt the way you feel right now. And if they got through it, so can you. And yes, things can get better. With that, it's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get up or even if they don't. Reach the end of the line When things get rough some think it's easy to jump the ship You decide I say Don't throw away There's about a million reasons why Though you've heard them all before They're getting very tired Lay your head on my lap And I'll sing you this lullaby Don't you know, yeah
paradise.